Hello, everyone. Hi, Maxine. Hey, hey Bob. We're yeah. talking at the same time today. Excited to be here. Yes. Uh, uh, how have you been doing? Uh, your loved ones are okay? Yeah, um, as, as okay as they can be, I guess, wherever they are, um, all over the place. So, um, yeah, how about you? Um, I'm also okay. I mean, it's uh, work, 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 work. And I think uh, this is something that centers and helps many Ukrainians to go through whatever. Um, and uh, I think that's uh, the uh, kind of the only approach that really works. I Today, one of our previous uh, speakers, Kripka, um, uh, she's shared uh, this fantastic project that I'm going to also amplify on Twitter, which is basically uh, handwritten notes from Ukrainians in Ukrainian in English, where they uh, document their lives and how, you know, everything, everything that they want to document, regular Ukrainian students or just uh, regular folks. And one of the notes uh, was very touching where basically um, uh, a student and she shares that uh, it's hard for her to process any emotions at the moment. And she just hopes to uh, basically box them somewhere else and um, allow them to uh, come back when we have the victory. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, for sure. After the victory is there, we can celebrate, we can grieve, or we can do and process and have all the emotions possible. But for now, it feels sometimes that it's not helpful to uh, have any, just to be super laser focused and carry on. I saw as well, I don't know if it was a joke. (laughs) I think, well, obviously it's not based on complete facts, but I saw someone post that like, uh, new stats show that only 2% of Ukrainians are tired <laughs> right now, which I thought was pretty brilliant. Yep. Um, okay, folks, uh, we're about to introduce you to our featured Ukrainians uh, this week. They're already with us. Um, but before we do, we run some of the um, ground rules, what it is, what we do why we're here, especially for those who join just for the first time ever. So Ukrainian Spaces, hashtag Ukrainian Spaces, uh, amplifies Ukrainian voices and decolonizes Ukraine conversations on Twitter. Uh, We founded it together with Valeria after we saw millions of Ukrainians with perfect English sharing their stories across all social media platforms. Yet uh, uh, the conversations about Ukraine are still unfortunately dominated by Western, mostly white, mostly male folks. And not only it continuously robs Ukrainians of their agency, but it also perpetuates outdated, misleading and false narratives about Ukraine and Ukrainians. So instead, what we're doing here, we are fostering a relaxed, safe and chill space for Ukrainian voices to express themselves without the need of fitting Western boxes, and the rest can use this space to educate themselves and maybe decolonize your own views of Ukrainians. So each time we spend most of the hour offering the space to feature Ukrainians, feel free to request speaker mic for questions, but please hold no grudge if we run out of time to open the floor for these questions because we want to allow as much space as possible for our featured Ukrainians. 
Uh, Ukrainian Spaces exists only also as recorded uh, podcast. Recorded sessions are um, live and are uploaded on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can just search hashtag Ukrainian Spaces there. So please also subscribe and uh, share as widely as possible. Um, yeah, Valeria, uh, maybe you can also tell us a bit of ground rules about our yeah. conversations, and then I'll introduce Olena and Alina, who are already with us. For sure, and we haven't done it in a while, so I think it would be good to remind everyone about our rules. As Maxim said, we want to make sure that it's a safe space um, for everyone, for all Ukrainians. So we have three main ground rules. One is solidarity. We straight away, straight up want to acknowledge that, you know, in this space, we want to talk about Ukraine, but we are totally in solidarity with other people and other conflicts and situations of repression around the world. Um, those that might not be receiving the same amount of attention, we just want to express our solidarity with all of them. Two is lived experiences. We're trying to find the right words to describe to the world how we are feeling, but Yeah, um, I think Valeria has uh, problems with uh, sound suddenly. Um, okay. Um, if that's the case, uh, maybe Olena or Alina, tell me if you hear me uh, well. Yeah, I hear you well. I'm I also sorry. hear you well. <laughs> hey, everyone. Okay, so uh, I'll ask uh, Valeria to maybe uh, log in, log off, and because we lost your sound, uh, unfortunately. But um, I'm going to introduce now our featured Ukrainians. We have two today. I'm super excited about it. And um, uh, first and foremost, our rule that we do not introduce our speakers ourselves, and instead we allow um, you guys to have as much freedom as possible to tell us who you are, what you do, and emphasize the things that uh, you do in the way you wanted it. So I'll probably start with Elena uh, first. Elena, uh, can you tell us, you know, uh, quickly who you are, what you do these days? Um, so the rest who had, you know, the, the rest of the folks who have have had chance to know you, learn more. Thank you very much, Maxim and Valeria. Thanks for, for having me for this discussion today. Um, so my name is Elena Halushka. I am board member at the Kyiv-based NGO Anti-Corruption Action Center. Uh, so before the full-scale war, um, our NGO, and together with my colleagues, Vitaly Shobunin, Daria Kalinyuk, and uh, basically a, a few dozens of other uh, brilliant and very motivated people. We were pushing the uh, democracy building efforts, fighting against corruption, uh, building rule of law forward in Ukraine. And uh, um, I, I have to tell you that despite uh, being um, very critical and despite uh, always wanting much more, uh, we recognized and we acknowledged the huge success uh, which Ukraine managed to achieve uh, on the way of uh, building the, the truly effective and operational democracy. Um, 
during his speech yep. uh, on on the 22nd of February uh, when uh, Putin addressed uh, Russians well basically he addressed Ukrainians and and the entire world uh, at that moment but it was officially called as his address his speech to to the Russian people uh, he talked a lot about democracy he talked a lot about our anti-corruption efforts uh, basically he named all of the institutions which we managed to build like national anti-corruption bureau specialized anti-corruption yeah. prosecutors office high anti-corruption court he even said that we had an ongoing process of the cleansing of the High Council of Justice, that's the highest decision-making body in the judiciary, with the help of the independent panel with foreign uh, professionals on board. I mean, he he was uh, very well aware about the Ukrainian reform efforts and... Uh, that was the signal for us uh, that uh, Ukrainian success uh, in uh, building democracy, that's the threat to, to, to Putin's kleptocratic regime. Uh, yeah. And, and it, it, was, uh, it was like bizarre that uh, I was surprised that Putin was sometimes in some respects more informed about successes of Ukrainian reforms than our Western friends in some respects, isn't it? Yes, the case. and not only Bizarre. Western friends, even the Ukrainian society. You know, I, I was telling that he knows more about the reforms than, I don't know, 80% of, of average Ukrainians. Um, yeah, yeah. Th- that's the issue. And after the, the, the large-scale aggression, uh, unleashed um, together with my co- few of my colleagues, we moved to Warsaw. Most of our team stays in Ukraine. A lot uh, stayed in Kiev. They never left Kiev, even uh, when uh, th- there was the hot phase of of the attempt of Russians to attack uh, Kiev uh, on the ground. Because obviously, the the airstrikes and the missile attacks will continue even after the. Uh, retreating of Russian troops from Kyiv region. Um, but together with, with a few of our colleagues, we moved to Warsaw and uh, launched here the International Center for the Ukrainian Victory. And that's something, uh, Maxim, which you told uh, at the very beginning that, uh, you know, uh, we have to be very clear with what is our final goal. Our final goal is not just peace. Our final goal is Ukrainian victory. This is very clear. This is very uh, tangible, if I may put it that way. And uh, that's something w- w- which is the, the target and the goal of all of our uh, advocacy efforts and the work with, uh, with the international partners now. Yeah. We are advocating for the military assistance, sanctions, uh, documentation of war crimes and international tribunal, improvement of the humanitarian aid and Marshall Plan. Yeah, this is a very important, uh, um, this is a very important thing you said. And a lot of people, uh, especially non-Ukrainians, do not also understand that after what has happened and is happening after this genocide, I think there is nothing uh, less than a victory that uh, will um, end this. So there's nothing that you can negotiate in terms of peace that will um, be less than that. And I, I think like Ukrainians won't accept it, that we've already paid so, such a high price 
um, and we will pay, unfortunately, even higher one in coming weeks. So, yeah, Olena, thank you so much. And I want to um, let Alina also to introduce um, herself. Alina, if you can also share whatever is comfortable <laughs> in terms of where you are, what you're doing these days, and uh, how you've been doing as well. Yeah, sure, sure. Thanks, Maxim and Valeria, for inviting. I, I really love your podcasts. Uh, I, I already told you, Maxim, that I, I accidentally opened uh, Twitter, uh, saw that this is live. I started listening. I, I was about to leave my house for the meeting, and I, I was thinking, okay, I'll listen just for five minutes, and then I got stuck for one hour. So I'm I'm really happy to be uh, here right now. It's it's a really cool project of yours. Um, I'm myself originally a lawyer, um, and I, I was educated as a lawyer, and I, I was intended to work in the law firm. I did so, and then the revolution of dignity in 2014 happened. And uh, after that, myself and a lot of my friends uh, joined the government with volunteering efforts. We were helping uh, the ministries with the public service reform. Um, I um, involved. I was involved more in the regulation reform, helping the um, business to to work easier uh, in the country and we were working on attracting the investments. Um, my field of expertise was the energy. So um, for several years I was uh, advising the Ministry of Economy. We were drafting the uh, uh, legislation and ad ad advocating it through the governmental bodies. And uh, slowly after Ukraine gained more force after the Revolution of Dignity and the business came into the country, I, I joined more the business side while I was also uh, always the like kind of green energy advocate um, and expert and still is. Uh, so we're uh, working with the government on the energy reform. And there is also another part of my, my volunteering a job is uh, not job uh, fun, I guess, is that I'm, I'm also the president of the Cambridge Society of Ukraine. And we do uh, some educational projects with the Ukrainian scientists. So we uh, try to uh, um, help them to present their projects uh, in Cambridge and Oxford. And we have a special travel grant um, uh, named um, dedicated to Bogdan Solchanek. It's one of the heroes of the Heavenly Hundred, uh, the guys who died during the Maidan revolution. So yeah, that's that's kind of the, the front of mine. Uh, I, I still try to balance uh, my uh, day work uh, in the company and uh, uh, most of the time it's still volunteering. It's starting from, I don't know, purchasing some ammunition and ending up with some humanitarian support and uh, uh, continuing to help with the energy reform because I mean, we all understand that in big geopolitical contexts, uh, energy means a lot. And yeah. Uh, yeah, we're trying to, you know, it was difficult before the war to explain that, guys, we need to have more green energy. Yes, it might mm -hmm. be a little bit more expensive than, I don't know, whatever else. But in long term is, is the best thing for the country. Now it's easier to explain this. And uh, we work with a lot of uh, governments and companies and trying to convince them to go back to Ukraine or just to come to Ukraine once, uh, once we have the victory. You're yeah, just yeah. A, a little bit multitasking, just a little bit. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, you know, you know, for, for Ukrainians, it's uh, never enough. And, you know, I, I, all my friends, and including myself, I always feel this constant guilt that I'm not doing enough. And, and that's horrible because you're always like getting overloaded and you still think, oh, my God, no, 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 no. I have to do this. You have to do that. Uh, I mean, over time, you, you, you still prioritize and try to focus on, on like two, three things. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's something about Ukrainians. 
Yeah, being Ukrainian is another full-time job. And uh, this is this is one of the reasons, uh, many reasons, but one of the reasons why we invited you both, Alena and Alina, because you're uh, both extremely brilliant uh, women leading in the um, uh, Ukrainian civil society. And this is something I want to emphasize. Ukrainian civil society is mostly women-led, which is a fantastic kick-ass thing. Um, but also because uh, uh, you're both, um, I mean, with Alina, we coordinate some stuff on humanitarian aid. Uh, Olena is also prominent voice in terms of uh, um, explaining what Ukraine needs at the moment in an indispensable voice as well. But um, I think today we gathered mostly to uh, break some myths about how unreformed Ukraine was before the war. And you both are fantastic voices to explain that and uh, kill some of the myths. Because one of the narratives that is still extremely popular, both among our allies and also our enemies, that Ukraine has always been this horrible, unreformed mess. And basically nothing good ever came out of it. And you know, uh, the support for Ukraine is unfortunately always contingent on some checklists, what Ukraine needs to do, another 150th reform it needs to do. So we're treated as equal human beings. So help us, please, to put some of those myths to rest. And I probably start with Olena. Um, Olena, if you, I, I know it, it's hard to pin something, one. But if you were thought of, uh, you know, those myths or misconceptions about reforms in Ukraine in general, what is the thing that frustrates you the most these days? So what kind of a myth that you think is the most hurtful and the most popular at the moment? If you can pin one or two. Um, well, I, I'm not sure that at this particular moment there is a kind of a myth which um, overwhelmingly disseminated. But uh, immediately before the war started, we were, I mean, we uh, started uh, monitoring the uh, intelligence of the Western uh, partners since there was the second phase of the build-up, which started in uh, uh, autumn. And we were very, I mean, seriously uh, uh, thinking about, uh, about the situation. So we started basically advocating for the uh, military assistance to Ukraine since November. There was something very unusual, you know, uh, anti-corruption activists um, instead of criticizing the government for not doing the reforms, we were advocating for military assistance. And at that moment, I heard um, something which hurt me very much. And it was like, why does the West have to support Ukraine if you are deeply corrupt country, right? Uh, th 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 there was something, you know, it, it was so uh, wrong. I mean, you know, f f first thought was, uh, well, does it mean that only uh, countries without corruption have the right to, to sovereignty 
and to, yeah, to and survive find one. Find if, ones. <laughs> if the aggression yes by the way that's a very good question because we are seeing that um, the, the the entire uh, world order is in decadence and all these international agencies which were teaching us um, how to do the reforms, how to build democracy, they themselves are uh, having underlying and deeply rooted problems like to, to take the UN with their UN Security Council alone. Um, but, but generally, you know, that's the myth which which is very wrong uh, because um, the uh, the level of corruption, the problem of corruption since the re the revolution of dignity, uh, it changed drastically. It changed significantly. Probably there might be the perception that um, th th there has been much more corruption after Maidan, but it's only because we introduced unprecedented transparency. We opened up so much information which used to be closed. Um, journalists were doing amazingly great uh, investigations. Uh, a lot of these investigations followed up with uh, real criminal cases. And uh, Civil society has been doing a, a very active job. Uh, I mean, all these things together, they might have created the, the perception that uh, the, the level of corruption was increasing and that the problem of corruption uh, was growing. Uh, but that's not the case. Ukraine has done tremendous right. job. And together with Daria Kalinyuk, we authored uh, an article for the foreign policy in December where we argued that uh, it, it was targeted at uh, uh, at the White House and at the President Biden because he announced that, uh, you know, with his election, there's going to be this global crusade for the democracy and democracies will be fighting against authoritarianism. And uh, we made an argument that Ukraine has changed significantly and Ukraine is the role model for other emerging democracies. Some of our ideas are being implemented in Moldova now. Some of our ideas are being implemented in other countries which are struggling to transit from the autocracy to, to democracy. And we have to recognize these uh, successes. We have to be talking about them. Uh, and that's something which I have the feeling was, was very much missing from the discourse uh, before the large-scale uh, uh, aggression. And that's something which frustrated me really, really much. Right. Um, I know, Valeria, you wanted to, you had a question, right? Um, I was just, yeah, I was just going to add, but I know Maxim as well has a follow-up that was such a rich... Um, as well, statement. Thank you, Elena, so much. I just wanted to say that I think the war in general has highlighted so much hypocrisy in the world that we have seen from all directions, you know, that it's it's a little bit, I guess, yeah, as you say, like that that myth of like, and of corrupt country that cannot or should not be helped or whatever. I think it also comes with the understanding that many have of this, like Ukraine as a black box um, that just, is connected to a lot of stereotypes and a lot of whatnot, random things that have been repeated over and over again yeah. for the past couple of decades. But Maxim. Yeah. 
I, I wanted to encourage everyone to uh, not only follow Olena if you have uh, haven't had yet a uh, chance to do that, but also the work that attack uh, the leading Ukrainian anti-corruption center has been doing over uh, over these years. And one of the things I quickly wanted to follow up and ask Olena, um, you mentioned the corruption and global kleptocracy, and you guys did amazing work. You actually risked your lives and security for exposing corruption in Ukraine, but you also did enormous amount of work exposing the links of that corruption uh, to global kleptocracy. And what your work is amazingly doing and showing that the problem of corruption that we have in Ukraine or in Russia is not a local problem. The kleptocracy is a global regime and it cannot exist without the West fueling and and supporting it. So isn't it also frustrating for you that uh, you have to kind of point it out on top of taking care of business at home when it comes to corruption, you clearly realize that you cannot fix this problem only on your own and our friends in some Western countries such as UK and you know other offshores haven't been exactly super helpful in uh, in the years before the war. Uh, uh, with that as well, isn't it the the case as well? Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, at a certain point, when we realized that if Ukrainian corruption uh, was only, I mean, if corruption itself was only our domestic problem, we would have successfully uh, uh, overcome it long ago. But the, the problem of the corruption uh, is that um, uh, it is very much enabled by by the Western uh, by the Western countries, and this incentivizes uh, even more corruption because when corrupt officials uh, realize that they can rob. Uh, their societies, they can make fortunes in their societies, they are uh, facing absolute impunity for that, and then they laundered these proceeds of corruption in the Western countries and their families and themselves, they enjoy luxurious lives, you know, uh, on the French Riviera, uh, their kids are studying in the best universities of, of the UK or the US, um, you know, their um, uh, uh, bank accounts are in SWIFT banks and they are having holidays uh, in the world's best resources, then why the hell would they stop doing this corruption if they can enjoy, uh, you know, the life of, of the dream of any person on the earth and, uh, and, and nobody basically prosecutes them for that, neither in their home countries, uh, which is logical because... Uh, uh, mostly in those countries which are in the transition from the uh, autocracy to democracy, the uh, criminal justice system is, uh, is not that strong. Uh, it, it is either in the process of building up uh, or it is just part of the uh, rotten uh, governmental system. Uh, but why aren't these people prosecuted in the Western countries? That's yeah. a very good question. And if we talk about Ukraine, in case of Ukraine, the West was 
uh, enabling this corruption. Uh, but if we are talking about the uh, Russian, Russian corruption, for example, that that was the problem was even much deeper because in that case, corruption was the real national security threat for the Western countries because due to this corruption, uh, you know, Western countries had the problems with um, with populistic movements uh, which were fueled. Uh, by this money, uh, who were investing in far right and and far left parties, uh, we have been seeing that uh, strategic businesses are very much tied and linked to Russia, and that's what we are seeing right now. You know, in Germany, that this is not that easy to introduce this gas embargo because Russia is so deeply penetrated in the different, uh, you know, economic uh, spheres, uh, in the businesses uh, in Germany, then it requires really very strong political will to cut these ties and to start moving forward. And And unfortunately, we've been shouting out that corruption is a big problem, not only of the countries in transition, like like Ukraine, but for the Western countries, too. And we were not heard. And, you know, uh, the, the, the whole industries of enablers, like lawyers bankers, accountants, so people who, who, who made themselves fortunes on helping corrupt officials to hide their monies uh, in the Western financial systems. I mean, they were blooming and everybody was fine with that. I yeah. hope at least that's what I'm hearing, that, um, the, the, uh, that Russian invasion uh, in Ukraine, it brought this question of uh, accountability um, of Russian oligarchs uh, about the way that it's that the status quo is very bad uh, on the agenda. But will these uh, discussions transform in the policy solutions? I do not know because as yeah. of now, I'm not seeing you know uh, decisive actions uh, to to have something uh, finally done. Yeah, with absolutely. Uh, whatever is done. Whatever is done is still uh, just a tiny, tiny bit fraction of what is needed to to do to cut them off um, and to help, uh, like not only uh, Ukrainians but also, you know, to cut out the Russian kleptocracy from uh, from the West. Um, Alina, uh, can I ask you also a very similar question, uh, but specifically maybe related to? also the area of your interest. So you mentioned energy reforms and green energy reforms. Um, and I think just as a journalist, I'm not a specialist, but as a journalist, I've also seen the story that hasn't been covered well in recent years, that Ukraine made such a good progress uh, when it comes to finding out alternative sources of energy, green included, uh, because Ukrainians know and knew before all too well that dependence on Russian oil and gas has price in real lives. So when it comes to those reforms, what or maybe something else that you want to highlight, what frustrates you the most? What is still absent uh, when it comes to Western perspective of uh, reforms in Ukraine? Uh, what would you like to highlight? 
Yeah, thanks, Maxim. Well, first of all, I, I couldn't uh, could not uh, highlight that indeed the corruption topic is 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 one of the myths which I also stumbled on uh, uh, during my work. And uh, I mean, I'm always trying to compare the Ukraine before 2014 and after 2014. Before 2014, I myself wanted to leave Ukraine. I was studying in the UK and I wanted to go back there. Um, but after revolution, everything changed like zero to one. Like uh, it's just unbelievable uh, that um, the way the country opened and the way everything became more accessible. I mean, starting from a lot of young people uh, joining the government, joining the parliament and st starting to do like uh, real good advocacy and, and some real changes. That, that kind of um, uh, empowered a lot of people to uh, to be more transparent, to fight with the corruption, to for civil society itself played a really great role. So, I mean, and I always felt that this is so much different from other countries with which we worked in the EU. And this is what I also felt that some of my foreign colleagues admired a lot, that uh, a lot of our institutions are very open um, it's 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 getting so easy to go to talk with the MP, to go to talk with the governmental official, and to change the rules as well. I mean, um, it's good and bad that the rules in Ukraine are changing quite often recently. Um, uh, good because there is a, a real influence from people. You can draft a legislation, advocate it, and 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 change uh, the way you want it. Um, and bad is that you always have to adjust to something new. Uh, but um, uh, a lot of my colleagues uh, from from Norway, from uh, uh, from from uh, EU countries, they're they're still uh, surprised to that. But I'm 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 kind of happy with this. Just one of the recent great examples, uh, which kind of sur surpassed all the expectations in the uh, at least in the energy sphere, is that uh, like uh, you might know that um, uh, technically uh, we were always connected with the uh, Russian Russian Belarusia. So basically we were um, sharing electricity between these countries. And it was planned that at some point of time we would have to disconnect from Russian Belarusia and connect physically to the uh, European grid. And actually the plan, the optimistic plan was that we would do this by the next year. And whenever we're having negotiations with some partners, they were always saying, oh, come on, you will connect only next year. And once you do that, then maybe we'll talk about some new investment projects in Ukraine, because, of course, it will be so much easier once Ukraine is part of the EU uh, electricity network. And what uh, our uh, Ukrainergo uh, state-owned company did is that they connected to the European network during the war this March. I mean, it was, it's just so amazing. Uh, and nobody still believes that this has actually happened. So they, they, they both uh, physically and legally um, uh, reconnected from the Russian Belarusian network. And we are now fully integrated into the uh, European Union electricity um, uh, grid. Which and is not something that some even the EU states have at the moment. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, and you know, like, uh, and it's not, it's, of course, it's not the, the job of one day, it, and it's not even of several months, it's the work of several years. And the way um, our government state bodies worked is just unbelievable. Also, uh, last year, uh, this uh, state-owned company, Ukrainergo, uh, they raised a huge um, um, security um, debts for, to cover some... Um, 
to cover some issues for their work and it was uh, traded with the foreign companies and everybody was impressed by the level of professionalism and dedication and I constantly hear how uh, professional and uh, um and dedicated our some of our state-owned companies. Of course, we still struggle with the with the you know Soviet legacy, and of course we struggle with some of the corruption in in especially in in central in regional levels, yeah. and 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 that's normal, and that's what we have to face, and that's what Elena told. Okay, this this just became more visible and transparent, and we talk about this and we fight with this. And actually, once uh, we were building the green energy in Ukraine, it's actually there was indeed a boom during the last years. And uh, I think that most of the foreign direct investments which came to Ukraine were uh, from green energy. Um, yeah. Yeah. So a lot of foreign companies uh, who are right now in Ukraine are um, in green energy sector. So there was a huge boom. But we faced also, I think, a part of the Russian propaganda that um, a lot of um, people and uh, media was saying that green energy is too expensive, we don't need it. And then there were a lot of kind of debates on, on how to develop green energy further. So we were kind of fighting with this uh, thing. And now, now it's, it's getting a little bit easier to explain why we need green energy. Um, but Russia was constantly pulling, you know, their idea that, okay, you need to consume gas, you need to have just nuclear and, and we buy nuclear fuel from Russia. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of a problem similar to coal and um, yeah we were working quite a lot uh, with our state bodies to change that and uh, we will continue doing that Alina can I ask you just a, a follow-up to this obviously we're talking to both you and Olena who are representatives incredible representatives of the civil society and you know, I was just wondering, in, you know, obviously in recent years, there's been such a rise in, in civil society activism around climate change in general and, you know, people calling for the need for green energy. And I actually was thinking about this quite a, quite a bit when all these discussions started about like turning off Russian gas or stopping using Russian gas or paying for it or, or whatnot for Europe, but also the world more broadly. Has there been any sort of um, solidarity, I would say, between some of those people worldwide calling for um, global reform around energy? Or have you been, it has it been more difficult to reach out to those people? Because uh, it seems like there must be such an incredible right now opportunity for everyone to speak about the need to change the way that we essentially live and, and um, operate in terms of energy. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think it was like um, I, um, awakening experience for everyone that how much everybody was dependent on the Russian gas, well, especially Germany, we can see it quite vividly, that uh, they they are on the hook of Russian gas, and it's very difficult for them to get off this hook. And uh, mm, another thing about green energy, that it's kind of uh, very difficult right now to completely revamp everything to make uh, green. So there was there will always be uh, some sort of an energy mix, right? There will be uh, green, hopefully majority, then there will be gas, there will be probably some coal, and there is a need for new technologies which would help to, to balance the, the system. So what the uh, the mistake of uh, a lot of European countries, first, reliance on Russian gas, and second is that uh, they should have developed more of their own gas, and similar to Ukraine, you know, like we still have a lot of uh, gas resources, and I think that we should develop more of that. And uh, we have enough to uh, cover our own consumption and probably something even to export. 
And but it was just so convenient to get Russian gas, you know, for so such a long time. Uh, the companies who uh, the, the countries who suffered before uh, a lot from the uh, Russian imperialism, right? Uh, like Baltic countries, Poland, they made a little bit smarter decisions in terms of the gas. So they have more of their um, either own generation or they diversified um, uh, suppliers or they diversified the way the gas is transported and stored. So that's why we see right now that Baltic countries and Poland are easier. Uh, easy, uh, it's easier for them to say that, okay, we, we are ready to get rid of the Russian gas. The other countries, they just made themselves completely dependent. And I think that um, I think that Olaf or, or like they already um, said that, yes, it was our mistake. And now they have to uh, think of, of the alternatives. One of them is, of course, green energy, but then right. gas, gas should still be on the table. Yeah, Alina, I, I, I think you, I mean, you mentioned also um, a topic that we spent a lot of time. It's uh, related to Russian colonialism and imperialism and why it's so hard for our friends uh, abroad in the West to recognize it and to see the situation and what is happening now in Ukraine through that. But also, I wanted, related to that, I want to ask Elena, because sometimes we also face a bit colonial um, approach or colonial gaze from our Western friends as well, maybe even subconsciously on some levels. Because, um, Elena, I mean, you've been involved in one of the largest chunk of reforms that is connected and directly related to uh, Ukraine's uh, European Union integration, because anti-corruption reforms are, you know, integral to this process and basically the bedrock of those reforms that we have to had to go through in the last eight years. But what became apparent in uh, in the last uh, weeks that you can check as many boxes as it, as you can, and you can follow every procedure possible, and you can do it deliver any uh, success on the progress you're asked for. But at the end of the day, the decision whether even to grant a status of uh, candidate country to the European Union is purely political, right? Um, isn't it frustrating? Or how do you feel as a person who spent years and years delivering on those benchmarks on, you know, regarding reforms? to find ourselves in this situation where this decision turns out to be purely political rather than technical, or maybe you disagree with it. Um, well, yeah, that's always the, the, the political decision. And uh, here I would like to uh, recall uh, the Visa Liberalization Action Plan, which basically we were working on back in 2014, 2016. And for us, as the anti-corruption activists, that was a very powerful reform leverage. So at that moment, we were, we were very happy having it. Uh, and because post-Maidan, um, Ukrainian government, they were um, explicitly and vocally uh, pro-European. It was very complicated for them to divert uh, from the reforms which the European Union was um, requesting, demanding Ukraine to do. Uh, but at a certain point, when we finally managed to implement all 144 
reforms on the list, which President Poroshenko was very proud of, um, we realized that the European Union was not ready to, to, to grant visa uh, liberalization to us. We were very much frustrated. Well, we heard a lot of excuses like um, we are having uh, elections in France and, you know, Marie Le Pen might uh, be elected as the president. And if we grant visa liberalization to Ukraine today, and uh, thousands uh, or hundreds of thousands of uh, Ukrainian migrants will pour into the European Union. They will uh, go to France and, uh, you know, Marie Le Pen will mobilize her uh, far-right electorate saying based on this migration crisis. So, so, so let us kind of postpone this to after French elections and then something else might uh, appear and so on and so forth. So uh, at that moment, we basically um, we channeled our advocacy efforts on the European Union. And I remember that we did um, a very solid uh, advocacy campaign targeting Brussels, Paris, Berlin, uh, to make sure that they also deliver because it's, it's not one way that one uh, side can, uh, you know, list the demands, list the requirements, and the other side will, uh, will just implement them forever. It's not working that way. Uh, uh, in order to get uh, the um, effective reform leverage, there should always be the carrot afterwards. There should always be something as the reward which should be the motivation for the political class and for the society to do these reforms. That is why uh, a year ago we started very actively advocating for the uh, NATO membership action plan. We realized that back in 2008 uh, it was a very unfair decision for the, by the NATO allies to promise us membership action plans somewhere in the future and then within the next 12 years uh, to avoid any conversations about it, saying that it's not the right time. Uh, it, it, it's No, maybe Ukraine is not ready. Uh, you know, what we are seeing today is that Ukrainian army is the best army with, with regards to the combat experience comparing to any European army. Absolutely, yeah. If, if there is a country which deserves being in NATO, this is Ukraine. But we were refused this, even, even despite the fact that we tried to advocate under the angle of the reforms, like let us have the mutual benefits. Ukraine, NATO grants us membership action plan finally we do all the reforms which you think we are lacking like the you, you acknowledge that we have done amazingly great job uh, with reforming our defense sector with reforming our armed forces we still need to end up the anti-corruption and rule of law reforms okay give us this membership action plan we will continue uh, we will complete 
all the missing reforms, mm. and then we will join, join NATO and everybody will benefit from this um, yeah. from the outcomes, from this cooperation. But we were yeah. rejected this under 100 different excuses. This is not the mm -hmm. right time. Go Correct. talk to Berlin. Go talk to Paris. Um, you are a deeply corrupt country. And so on and so forth. But, but all this bullshit had the only actual reason. And we are seeing this reason today that the Absolutely. West is afraid of Russia. Ukraine yeah. is not afraid of Russia. The West, which is supposed to be much more powerful than Ukraine, is afraid of Russia. So to make long story short, with regards to the, to, to the EU uh, membership, um, I was the, the biggest proponent of this conditionalities approach because that's something which... Uh, could help, which helped us a lot uh, in the past to, to, to move forward with the reforms. But at this very moment of the history, I think that this is the moral obligation of the European Union to accept Ukraine to the EU immediately under the fast track procedure, because we already proved that we are capable of doing all of the necessary rule of law, political, uh, democracy-related reforms, and we are right now executed because of that. We are right now revenged yeah. by Russia because of our desire to be the part of this Western family, to, to have the decent yeah. life, to have the democracy. That's the, yeah, the absolute minimum they have to do with regards to us because we are shielding them. I mean, Ukrainian kids, Ukrainian women, Ukrainian men, they are the shield to Russian aggression. If Ukraine was taken over by Russia in 72 hours, as we heard best intelligence predicted, Putin would not stop within Ukrainian borders. Putin would have already attacked the West. The, the, the fact that the, that the war is in Ukrainian border is just the, yeah. the, uh, the, the result yeah, of the Yeah, absolutely. And this is, something, this is something that uh, Ukrainians also, not only NATO, this is something Ukrainians always told and keep, uh, you know, keep repeat, kept repeating over the years, that if Ukraine had this carrot and at least in the form of open talks about membership or not even membership, uh, um, you know, candidate membership status, but only talks and roadmap that this war wouldn't happen. And it's exactly happening because we've never been rewarded with any carrots for our reforms. And I think that I think need to be emphasized over and over again as bombs raining down on Kiev, as we, you know, reported and spoke before, Ukrainian parliament still was working, still was passing laws, still was, you know, considering and approving reforms. And, you know, in, the, in one of my favorite moments when uh, European Commission, uh, Ursula von der Leyen were in Kiev delivering the questionnaire for uh, candidate status to Zelensky, uh, he just said, like, well, we'll come back to you with all the answers in, in a week. That's what 
the, that's what the resilience of Ukrainian democracy looks like, but moreover, the resilience and powerhouse of Ukrainian reforms as well. I know Valeria has before to wrap up our yeah. favorite question to ask. <laughs> I was just going to say our favorite question. Uh, we were uh, keeping it until the very end, but uh, to both Alina and Olena, uh, we asked this to everyone and we would like to ask you for your uh, take on this. But what does it mean for you to be Ukrainian and what values best describe um, how you feel about being Ukrainian? Alina, please, first, if that's okay. Sure. Um, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about after your first pod- podcast on that. And I think that for me, being Ukrainian, it means two words. Uh, it's freedom and power. Um, I think that our people love freedom more than anything. And we all remember this sign on our main square that uh, freedom is our religion. And that's so true. And I was always uh, struggling to explain my friends before the war, like the foreign friends, they were asking, oh, come on, how are you different from Russians? You speak almost the same language. You look similar. You have so many history similarities. But I was struggling to explain like how we are different. But I I know it so much that we so much love freedom and we are ready to fight for it. And to fight for it, we have power. And by power, I mean that all of us feel important to make a change. You know, like um, a lot of my Russian friends, uh, old friends, (laughs) not friends anymore, um, and and some relatives, they were always saying that, oh, come on, what can I do? I'm just uh, one person. I cannot change anything. And uh, since the revolution of dignity, we have this uh, phrase, you know, you're a drop in the ocean, but together you're an ocean. And uh, all of us feel uh, kind of important and powerful enough to make the change. And that's that's what about being Ukrainian, uh, free and powerful. Thank you, Thank so, you much. so much. Yeah, this is something that resonates with every and single guest we had. Like there is not a single was uh, comment saying, well, it's about you know, language or ethnicity or skin color or whatever other things I was born with. It was always about the set of values. Yeah, so this is, uh, thank you so much for sharing that. Olena, can you also share uh, with us what I know that many Ukrainians are going through a lot of change when it comes to their identity these days, but what it means for you to be Ukrainian these days and has it changed uh, in any way in the last uh, almost two months of uh, uh, the ongoing genocide. Well, for me, being Ukrainian is basically means is the synonym to doing impossible. And for me, this kind of um, understanding of who are Ukrainians came with the revolution of dignity. So for me personally, that was a kind of a turning point. And to be uh, even more precise, this was the uh, death of the heavenly hundred heroes. Because uh, uh, just um, an hour ago, I, I saw the tweet, uh, I think it was from Anders Oslund, who said that, and I like it very much, it resonates very much to, to, with what I, I'm thinking, that Russians are always telling that uh, they cannot protest because they are afraid uh, of their lives, because they will be dispersed by, by Russian police. And that's probably it. Uh, the Heavenly Hundred Heroes, uh, they were wearing construction helmets. They were having wooden shields. And with all this uh, um, ammunition, 
uh, they went against professional snipers. And when the professional snipers started killing them, people did not leave Maidan. Much more people were going to Maidan to, to, to create this crowd and to protect our democratic choice. And since then, I've been witnessing uh, every day, well, for the last two months, that's absolutely every day. Uh, earlier, that was uh, probably more rare. Uh, but I'm seeing so many heroic uh, actions done by very ordinary people. I mean, somebody from whom you wouldn't expect this, like like that guy who was a hostage on the Chernobyl power plant. And for three days, there was no electricity there. And at a certain point, he realized that if, if the uh, uh, generation of uh, power is not renewed, then uh, th there might be the uh, kind of explosion uh, of, of the radioactive uh, substance or whatever. I do not know this terminology, but something uh, very bad with, with the nuclear security would happen. And, and he was stealing diesel from Russian soldiers to keep the generator going. So he, he, he was basically, he realized that he was risking his life but simultaneously, he also realized that um, the, the future of, of the humanity, at least on the European continent, might be at stake. And for him, he gave the interview. I read it. I, I cried on it. it. It was not a matter of, of choice. I mean, the choice was absolutely obvious for him. And, and you know, when I'm hearing that Russians good Russians. They are just sitting at home. They cannot do anything because they are afraid of Putin. And at the same time, I'm seeing Ukrainians sacrificing their lives, doing this, all these heroic actions. I mean, I'm very proud of being Ukrainian. And, and I'm sure that we will overcome all this. I'm sure that we will have the victory eventually. I'm just very much worried at which price for our society this victory will come. Thank you so much, Elena. We are so honored to have you um, with us talking about this. I think it's been just incredible to hear you speak and both you and Alina express everything, um, both from a personal perspective, but also from a professional perspective. And as Maxim said in the very beginning, I just want everyone to remember how amazing some of the civil society that is led by incredible women we have today is in Ukraine. Um, and just to make sure that everyone understands this and remembers it whenever they think about Ukraine or um, or 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 try to write about Ukraine. Um, but I'm just very grateful and very, very, very honored to have um, Olena and Alina here. Yeah, you're absolutely badass and yeah thank you for sharing this i i think this is something that everyone every ukrainian i don't know how many how many 
cries we have over the stories that we hear every day of Ukrainians sacrificing their lives without just a, a flinch of thought for their families, for their country, but also for Europe. And this is something that I've been really telling every day, sharing those stories, please asking people back in Europe also to think, this is what Ukraine and Ukrainians are doing for Europe. Has Europe done enough for Ukrainians to match that? And I think the answer that we have after almost two months is no. And this is something that I really hope will change because Elena and Alina, they're right. We will have this victory no matter what because of this bravery and what people are doing every day. It's just, uh, yeah, but what, what what's going to be the price that we'll pay for that victory without solidarity, without the things that we ask the world to to send to us? Is it going to be 10,000, 100,000, 1 million? So yeah, uh, thank you so much, everyone. Um, thank you so much, Elena, Alina. One quick you know, opportunity, if you'd like to amplify any of the platforms, people should follow your work. Uh, maybe you want to amplify some of the projects, people should Google and also help, or any fundraising goals that you're personally invested. Uh, would you like to share anything, uh, please, Alina? Yeah, to be honest, I think that the only place uh, for me which matters the most right now and which needs most help is Mariupol. Um, and uh, I, I shared in some of my platforms the details where people can donate money, and I will share it once again on Twitter. But this is the place, like I think it's the hell on earth uh, right now for, for already second months. And uh, I think we need to put all resources to help people there as much as we can, advocacy, money, support, whatever. Yeah, thanks. Olena, anything you would like to, for people to fundraise, donate, amplify these days uh, specifically? Well, I would ask you to donate your time to contacting your lawmaker, MP, whoever is your representative, and to uh, push them push their government to send much more robust military assistance to Ukraine because we need tanks, we need artillery. Uh, th that's something which President Zelensky has been uh, numerous, repeating numerous times, air and missile defense systems, jets, drones. Uh, the West is reluctant to help us to win this war. So the military assistance which Ukraine is right now receiving is aimed at helping us to hold the ground and not win this war. And the war of attrition, so the war which will last for, for years for Ukraine, means butchers every month, every week. I don't know. Th this means hundreds of thousands of casualties. We cannot afford uh, to pay such a higher price. We need to win this war very soon, very fast. And in the next few weeks, there's going to be a decisive battle 
uh, in uh, uh, in the east and in the south of the country. And to be well prepared for that battle, we need to significantly reinforce our military capacities. So I, I please, I, I, I'm seeing that there are prominent journalists here, activists listening to us. You have the power. You have the, 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 the political capital. Please help us make your governments significantly step up with the military support because, because we do not have time to wait. We need to get this as soon as possible. Yeah, thank you. Uh, sign up for everything, you know, everything that uh, Alina and Elena said. Um, okay, guys, thank you so much. Um, I'll just uh, remind you that you can claim the hashtag Ukrainian Spaces. And please use it on Twitter to share your own um, stories, your own comments, your own suggestions, what you want us to cover and the featured Ukrainians you want us to feature. Uh, but I also remind you that this all exists as podcasts and recorded sessions are uploaded on Spotify and Apple uh, podcasts, hashtag Ukrainian spaces. So uh, listen there and share as widely as possible we are doing it this just as a volunteer effort when we have free time. So we need uh, your help to make it work and make it spread and make it trending. Um, this is all I have uh, for today. Uh, the only thing that I left to say is uh, Slava Ukraini. Thank you so much, and we will see you soon this Friday around the same time. Uh, just keep track of the hashtag. Thank you. Thanks, Bye. everyone. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.